Volume Three, Chapter Thirteen A of The Mysteries of Udolpho. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Missy, Guangzhou, China. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Volume Three. Chapter Thirteen. As when a wave that from a cloud impends, and swelled with tempests on the ship descends, white are the decks with foam, the winds aloud howl o'er the masts and sing through every shroud. Pale, trembling, tired, the sailors freeze with fears, and instant death on every wave appears. Pope's Homer. The Lady Blanche, meanwhile, who was left much alone, became impatient for the company of her new friend, whom she wished to observe sharing in the delight she received from the beautiful scenery around. She had now no person to whom she could express her admiration and communicate her pleasures, no eye that sparkled to her smile or countenance that reflected her happiness, and she became spiritless and pensive. The Count, observing her dissatisfaction, readily yielded to her entreaties, and reminded Emily of her promised visit. But the silence of Valancourt, which was now prolonged far beyond the period when a letter might have arrived from Estuvieres, oppressed Emily with severe anxiety, and rendering her averse to society, she would willingly have deferred her acceptance of this invitation till her spirits should be relieved. The Count and his family, however, pressed to see her, and as the circumstances that prompted her wish for solitude could not be explained, there was an appearance of caprice in her refusal, which she could not persevere in without offending the friends whose esteem she valued. At length, therefore, she returned upon a second visit to Chateau Le Blanc. Here the friendly manner of Count de Villefort encouraged Emily to mention to him her situation, respecting the estates of her late aunt, and to consult him on the means of recovering them. He had little doubt that the law would decide in her favour, and advising her to apply to it, offered first to write to an advocate at Avignon, on whose opinion he thought he could rely. His kindness was gratefully accepted by Emily, who, soothed by the courtesy she daily experienced, would have been once more happy, could she have been assured of Valancourt's welfare and unaltered affection. She had now been above a week at the chateau, without receiving intelligence of him, and though she knew that if he was absent from his brother's residence it was scarcely probable her letter had yet reached him, she could not forbear to admit doubts and fears that destroyed her peace. Again she would consider of all that might have happened in the long period since her first seclusion at Adolfo, and her mind was sometimes so overwhelmed with an apprehension that Valancourt was no more, or that he lived no longer for her, that the company even of Blanche became intolerably oppressive, and she would sit alone in her apartment for hours together, when the engagements of the family allowed her to do so without incivility. In one of these solitary hours she unlocked a little box, which contained some letters of Valancourt, with some drawings she had sketched during her stay in Tuscany, the latter of which were no longer interesting to her, but in the letters she now with melancholy indulgence meant to retrace the tenderness that had so often soothed her, and rendered her, for a moment, insensible of the distance which separated her from the writer. But their effect was now changed. The affection they expressed appealed so forcibly to her heart when she considered that it had perhaps yielded to the powers of time and absence, and even the view of the handwriting recalled so many painful recollections, that she found herself unable to go through the first she had opened 
and sat musing with her cheek resting on her arm and tears stealing from her eyes when old dorothy entered the room to inform her that dinner would be ready an hour before the usual time emily started on perceiving her and hastily put up the papers but not before dorothy had observed both her agitation and her tears ah mademoiselle said she you who are so young have you reason for sorrow emily tried to smile but was unable to speak alas dear young lady when you come to my age you will not weep at trifles and surely you have nothing serious to grieve you no dorothy nothing of any consequence replied emily dorothy now stooping to pick up something that had dropped from among the papers suddenly exclaimed holy mary what is it that i see and then trembling sat down in a chair that stood by the table what is it you do see said emily alarmed by her manner and looking round the room it is herself said dorothy her very self just as she looked a little before she died emily still more alarmed began now to fear that dorothy was seized with sudden frenzy but entreated her to explain herself that picture said she where did you find it lady it is my blessed mistress herself she laid on the table the miniature which emily had long ago found among the papers her father had enjoined her to destroy and over which she had once seen him shed such tender and affecting tears and recollecting all the various circumstances of his conduct that had long perplexed her her emotions increased to an excess which deprived her of all power to ask the questions she trembled to have answered and she could only inquire whether dorothy was certain the picture resembled the late marchioness oh mademoiselle said she how came it to strike me so the instant i saw it if it was not my lady's likeness ah oh, added she taking up the miniature these are her own blue eyes looking so sweet and so mild and there is her very look such as i have often seen it when she had sat thinking for a long while and then the tears would often steal down her cheeks but she never would complain it was that look so meek as it were and resigned that used to break my heart and make me love her so dorothy said emily solemnly i am interested in the cause of that grief more so perhaps than you may imagine and i entreat that you will no longer refuse to indulge my curiosity it is not a common one as emily said this she remembered the papers with which the picture had been found and had scarcely a doubt that they had concerned the marchioness de villeroy but with this supposition came a scruple whether she ought to inquire further on a subject which might prove to be the same that her father had so carefully endeavoured to conceal her curiosity concerning the marchioness powerful as it was it is probable she would now have resisted as she had formerly done on unwarily observing the few terrible words in the papers which had never since been erased from her memory had she been certain that the history of that lady was the subject of those papers or that such simple particulars only as it was probable dorothy could relate were included in her father's command what was known to her could be no secret to many other persons and since it appeared very unlikely that st aubert should attempt to conceal what emily might learn by ordinary means she at length concluded that if the papers had related to the story of the marchioness it was not those circumstances of it which dorothy could disclose that he had thought sufficiently important to wish to have concealed she therefore no longer hesitated to make the inquiries that might lead to the gratification of her curiosity ah mademoiselle said dorothy it is a sad story and cannot be told now but what am i saying i never will tell it many years have passed since it happened and i never loved to talk of the marchioness to anybody but my husband 
He lived in the family at that time as well as myself, and he knew many particulars from me which nobody else did. For I was about the person of my lady in her last illness, and saw and heard as much or more than my lord himself. Sweet saint, how patient she was! When she died, I thought I could have died with her. Dorothy, said Emily, interrupting her, what you shall tell, you may depend upon it, shall never be disclosed by me. I have, I repeat it, particular reasons for wishing to be informed on this subject, and am willing to bind myself in the most solemn manner never to mention what you shall wish me to conceal. Dorothy seemed surprised at the earnestness of Emily's manner, and after regarding her for some moments in silence, said, Young lady, that look of yours pleads for you. It is so like my dear mistress's that I can almost fancy I see her before me. If you were her daughter, you could not remind me of her more. But dinner will be ready. Had you not better go down? You will first promise to grant my request, said Emily. And ought not you first to tell me, mademoiselle, how this picture fell into your hands, and the reasons you say you have for curiosity about my lady? Why, no, Dorothy, replied Emily, recollecting herself. I have also particular reasons for observing silence on these subjects, at least till I know further. And remember, I do not promise ever to speak upon them. Therefore, do not let me induce you to satisfy my curiosity from an expectation that I shall gratify yours. What I may judge proper to conceal does not concern myself alone, or I should have less scruple in revealing it. Let a confidence in my honour alone persuade you to disclose what I request. Well, lady, replied Dorothy, after a long pause, during which her eyes were fixed upon Emily, you seem so much interested and this picture and that face of yours make me think you have some reason to be so, that I will trust you, and tell some things that I never told before to anybody but my husband, though there are people who have suspected as much. I will tell you the particulars of my lady's death, too, and some of my own suspicions, but you must first promise me by all the saints. Emily, interrupting her, solemnly promised never to reveal what should be confided to her without Dorothy's consent. "'But there is the horn, mademoiselle, sounding for dinner,' said Dorothy. "'I must be gone.' "'When shall I see you again?' inquired Emily. Dorothy mused, and then replied, "'Why, madam, it may make people curious if it is known I am so much in your apartment, and that I should be sorry for. So I will come when I am least likely to be observed. I have little leisure in the day, and I shall have a good deal to say, so if you please, ma'am, I will come when the family are all in bed.' "'That will suit me very well,' replied Emily. "'Remember, then, to-night.' "'Aye, that is well remembered,' said Dorothy. "'I fear I cannot come to-night, madam, "'for there will be the dance of the vintage, "'and it will be late before the servants go to rest. "'For when they once set in to dance, "'they will keep it up in the cool of the air till morning. "'At least it used to be so in my time.' "'Ah, is it the dance of the vintage?' said Emily, "'with a deep sigh, "'remembering that it was on the evening of this festival "'in the preceding year.' that Saint-Aubert and herself had arrived in the neighbourhood of Chateau-le-Blanc. She paused a moment, overcome by the sudden recollection, and then, recovering herself, added, "'But this dance is in the open woods. You, therefore, will not be wanted, and can easily come to me.' Dorothy replied that she had been accustomed to be present at the dance of the vintage, and she did not wish to be absent now. "'But if I can get away, madam, I will,' said she. Emily then hastened to the dining-room, where the Count conducted himself with the courtesy which is inseparable from true dignity, and of which the Countess frequently practised little, though her manner to Emily was an exception to her usual habit. But if she retained few of the ornamental virtues, she cherished other qualities which she seemed to consider invaluable. She had dismissed the grace of modesty, 
but then she knew perfectly well how to manage the stare of assurance. Her manners had little of the tempered sweetness which is necessary to render the female character interesting, but she could occasionally throw into them an affectation of spirits, which seemed to triumph over every person who approached her. In the country, however, she generally affected an elegant languor that persuaded her almost to faint when her favourite read to her a story of fictitious sorrow. But her countenance suffered no change when living objects of distress solicited her charity, and her heart beat with no transport to the thought of giving them instant relief. She was a stranger to the highest luxury, of which perhaps the human mind can be sensible, for her benevolence had never yet called smiles upon the face of misery. In the evening the Count, with all his family, except the Countess and Mademoiselle Bern, went to the woods to witness the festivity of the peasants. The scene was in a glade where the trees opening formed a circle round the turf they highly overshadowed. Between their branches, vines, loaded with ripe clusters, were hung in gay festoons, and beneath were tables with fruit, wine, cheese, and other rural fare, and seats for the Count and his family. At a little distance were benches for the elder peasants, few of whom, however, could forbear to join the jocund dance, which began soon after sunset, when several of sixty tripped it with almost as much glee and airy lightness as those of sixteen. The musicians, who sat carelessly on the grass at the foot of a tree, seemed inspired by the sound of their own instruments, which were chiefly flutes and a kind of long guitar. Behind stood a boy, flourishing a tambourine and dancing a solo, except that as he sometimes gaily tossed the instrument he tripped among the other dancers, when his antic gestures called forth a broader laugh and heightened the rustic spirit of the scene. The Count was highly delighted with the happiness he witnessed, to which his bounty had largely contributed, and the Lady Blanche joined the dance with a young gentleman of her father's party. Dupont requested Emily's hand, but her spirits were too much depressed to permit her to engage in the present festivity, which called to her remembrance that of the preceding year, when Saint-Aubert was living, and of the melancholy scenes which had immediately followed it. Overcome by these recollections, she at length left the spot and walked slowly into the woods where the softened music, floating at a distance, soothed her melancholy mind. The moon threw a mellow light among the foliage, the air was balmy and cool, and Emily, lost in thought, strolled on without observing whither, till she perceived the sound sinking afar off, and an awful stillness round her, except that sometimes the nightingale beguiled the silence with liquid notes that closed the eye of day. At length she found herself near the avenue, which on the night of her father's arrival Michael had attempted to pass in search of a house, which was still nearly as wild and desolate as it had then appeared, for the Count had been so much engaged in directing other improvements that he had neglected to give orders concerning this extensive approach, and the road was yet broken and the trees overloaded with their own luxuriance. As she stood surveying it, and remembering the emotions which she had formerly suffered there, she suddenly recollected the figure that had been stealing among the trees, and which had returned no answer to Michael's repeated calls, and she experienced somewhat of the fear that had then assailed her, for it did not appear improbable that these deep woods were occasionally the haunt of banditti. She therefore turned back, and was hastily pursuing her way to the dancers, when she heard steps approaching from the avenue, and being still beyond the call of the peasants on the green, for she could neither hear their voices or their music, she quickened her pace. But the persons following gained fast upon her, and at length, distinguishing the voice of Henry, she walked leisurely till he came up. 
he expressed some surprise at meeting her so far from the company and on her saying that the pleasant moonlight had beguiled her to walk farther than she intended an exclamation burst from the lips of his companion and she thought she heard valancourt speak it was indeed he and the meeting was such as may be imagined between persons so affectionate and so long separated as they had been in the joy of these moments emily forgot all her past sufferings and valancourt seemed to have forgotten that any person but emily existed while henry was silent and astonished spectator of the scene valancourt asked a thousand questions concerning herself and montoni which there was now no time to answer but she learned that her letter had been forwarded to him at paris which he had previously quitted and was returning to gascony whither the letter also returned which at length informed him of emily's arrival and on the receipt of which he had immediately set out for languedoc on reaching the monastery whence she had dated her letter he found to his extreme disappointment that the gates were already closed for the night and believing that he should not see emily till the morrow he was returning to his little inn with the intention of writing to her when he was overtaken by henry with whom he had been intimate at paris and was led to her whom he was secretly lamenting that he should not see till the following day emily with valancourt and henry now returned to the green where the latter presented valancourt to the count who she fancied received him with less than his usual benignity though it appeared that they were not strangers to each other he was invited however to partake of the diversions of the evening and when he had paid his respects to the count and while the dancers continued their festivity he seated himself by emily and conversed without restraint the lights which were hung among the trees under which they sat allowed her a more perfect view of the countenance she had so frequently in absence endeavoured to recollect and she perceived with some regret that it was not the same as when last she saw it there was all its wonted intelligence and fire but it had lost much of the simplicity and somewhat of the open benevolence that used to characterize it still however it was an interesting countenance but emily thought that she perceived at intervals anxiety contract and melancholy fix the features of valancourt sometimes too he fell into a momentary musing and then appeared anxious to dissipate thought while at others as he fixed his eyes on emily a kind of sudden distraction seemed to cross his mind in her he perceived the same goodness and beautiful simplicity that had charmed him on their first acquaintance the bloom of her countenance was somewhat faded but all its sweetness remained and it was rendered more interesting than ever by the faint expression of melancholy that sometimes mingled with her smile at his request she related the most important circumstances that had occurred to her since she left france and emotions of pity and indignation alternately prevailed in his mind when he heard how much she had suffered from the villainy of montoni more than once when she was speaking of his conduct of which the guilt was rather softened than exaggerated by her representation he started from his seat and walked away apparently overcome as much by self-accusation as by resentment her sufferings alone were mentioned in the few words which he could address to her and he listened not to the account which she was careful to give as distinctly as possible of the present loss of madame Mantoni's estates and of the little reason there was to expect their restoration at length valancourt seemed lost in thought and then some secret cause seemed to overcome him with anguish again he abruptly left her when he returned she perceived that he had been weeping and tenderly begged that he would compose himself my sufferings are all past now said she for i have escaped from the tyranny of montoni and i see you well let me also see you happy valancourt was more agitated than before i am unworthy of you emily said he i am unworthy of you 
words by his manner of uttering which Emily was then more shocked than by their import. She fixed on him a mournful and inquiring eye. "'Do not look thus on me,' said he, turning away and pressing her hand. "'I cannot bear those looks.' "'I would ask,' said Emily, in a gentle but agitated voice, "'the meaning of your words, but I perceive that the question would distress you now. "'Let us talk on other subjects. "'Tomorrow, perhaps, you may be more composed. "'Observe those moonlight woods and the towers which appear obscurely in the perspective.' You used to be a great admirer of landscape, and I have heard you say that the faculty of deriving consolation under misfortune from the sublime prospects which neither oppression nor poverty withhold from us was the peculiar blessing of the innocent. Valancourt was deeply affected. Yes, replied he, I had once a taste for innocent and elegant delights. I had once an uncorrupted heart. Then checking himself, he added, Do you remember our journey together in the Pyrenees? "'Can I forget it?' said Emily. "'Would that I could,' he replied. "'That was the happiest period of my life. "'I then loved with enthusiasm whatever was truly great or good.' "'It was some time before Emily could repress her tears "'and try to command her emotions. "'If you wish to forget that journey,' said she, "'it must certainly be my wish to forget it also.' "'She paused and then added, "'You make me very uneasy, but this is not the time for further inquiry.' Yet how can I bear to believe, even for a moment, that you are less worthy of my esteem than formerly? I have still sufficient confidence in your candor to believe that when I shall ask for an explanation you will give it to me. Yes, said Valancourt, yes, Emily, I have not yet lost my candor. If I had, I could better have disguised my emotions on learning what were your sufferings. Your virtues will I—I— I, But I will say no more. I did not mean to have said even so much— I have been surprised into the self-accusation. Tell me, Emily, that you will not forget that journey, will not wish to forget it, and I will be calm. I would not lose the remembrance of it for the whole earth. How contradictory is this, said Emily. But we may be overheard. My recollection of it shall depend upon yours. I will endeavor to forget or to recollect it as you may do. Let us join the Count. Tell me first, said Valancourt, that you forgive the uneasiness I have occasioned you this evening and that you will still love me. I sincerely forgive you, replied Emily. You best know whether I shall continue to love you, for you know whether you deserve my esteem. At present I will believe that you do. It is unnecessary to say, added she, observing his dejection, how much pain it would give me to believe otherwise. The young lady who approaches is the Count's daughter. Valancourt and Emily now joined the Lady Blanche, and the party soon after sat down with the Count, his son, and the Chevalier de Pont at a banquet spread under a gay awning beneath the trees. At the table also were seated several of the most venerable of the Count's tenants, and it was a festive repast to all but Valancourt and Emily. When the Count retired to the chateau, he did not invite Valancourt to accompany him, who therefore took leave of Emily and retired to his solitary inn for the night. Meanwhile, she soon withdrew to her own apartment, where she mused with deep anxiety and concern on his behavior and on the Count's reception of him. Her attention was thus so wholly engaged that she forgot Dorothy and her appointment till morning was far advanced, when, knowing that the good old woman would not come, she retired for a few hours to repose. End of Volume 3, Chapter 13, Part A